Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most inspiring minds, including today's very special guest, Dita Vontes, a burlesque icon I was so overjoyed to speak with recently. Before we dive in with Dita, I've been asking each week for you to send me your requests of lists and recommendations that you'd like from me, and we've received so many good ones. Ellie wrote a very sweet message about her roommate who's from London but currently living in Seattle and feeling homesick. And Ellie asked me for any recommendations on food or things that we can do to make her feel more at home. Ellie, you're a very sweet friend and that's super thoughtful of you. I just recently found out that Marks and Spencers in England can deliver to America. So get some Yorkshire tea, get some Percy Pigs, There might be like an English deli somewhere nearby. You might be able to find some pickled onion monster munch. That always makes me feel so at home. That's probably the first thing I go and grab from the corner shop when I get back home to London. And there might be an English pub somewhere. So maybe why don't you guys take a trip and go for a little English roast? I think that'd be fun for both of you. Two worlds colliding. So yeah, enjoy. And thank you so much. Thanks for taking in the time to write and ask. If you want me to share any of my lists or recommendations on next week's episode, send us an email to podcast at service95.com. Please stay with me after this very short break when I'll return with the absolutely wonderful Dita Von Teese. Welcome back. I'm beyond thrilled to be joined this week by the one and only Dita Von Tees. Unquestionably the modern day queen of burlesque, Dita often takes to the stage wearing thousands of crystals and lace in haute couture. She's the pioneer of the martini glass striptease, teaching her routine in bedazzling style to Taylor Swift in the new music video for Bejeweled and performing it alongside Harry Styles in the film Don't Worry Darling. Dita was raised in rural Michigan before starting her career 30 years ago as a fetish model and stripper, eventually moving into burlesque. She's credited with revitalizing burlesque, a seductive form of performance that was popular in the mid-20th century. And today, she lives and breathes vintage glamour with a style that's reminiscent of the golden age of Hollywood. But don't be fooled. As you'll hear in our conversation, Dita is a thoroughly 21st century woman. She's an incredible businesswoman with her own lines of lingerie and fragrances. She's launched makeup collections and a clothing line. She's acted and modeled and she frequently appears on our TV screens on shows such as Dancing with the Stars, The Masked Singer and RuPaul's Drag Race. If you're lucky, you can catch her current touring show, Glaminatrix, which kicks back off in January in North America, which she describes as taking a decidedly modern twist on burlesque, bringing together glamour and dominatrix to speak to the power of women. In her words, it also brings together high glamour with something that's a little bit risque and taboo at times, the dominant side of being a female. Our conversation ranged from perceptions of sexuality and femininity in a non-binary world, taking care of the mind and body and what it's like to be truly buck naked on stage. Settle in and make yourself comfortable. You won't want to miss this one, I promise. Please welcome this week's At Your Service guest, Dita Von Tees. Dita, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for thinking of asking me. 
Of course. I mean, I have to make a little confession because I know we we spoke a little bit earlier and you told me you were in LA right now. Mm -hmm. And I have to confess that I've already been doing lots of research in preparation for this interview, (laughs) but I've been stalking you a bit and I'm slightly obsessed with this house. Oh. Like your house is incredible. Oh, thank you. The Architectural Digest video is so fun and your attention to detail is, is really great. I absolutely loved it. But yes, thank you so much for joining me. And all this glamour that you bring to our podcast today, I'm definitely feeling a little bit underdressed. I've got like a little spot sticker here on my chin and I've just left the studio, but I, um, it's so wonderful to see you. So thank you so much. You're welcome. For those who might not know your story as well as I do now, can you tell our listeners what burlesque is as an art form and how you first became interested in it? Like, when did you get the itch and when did you realize that you could actually make a career out of it? Well, I think it's kind of like a a string of events, you know, throughout my Mm. life when I was little. My mother collected antiques and then she also liked to watch movies from the 40s and 50s. And the women in those films had a big imprint on me. And I used to love to, you know, play dress up and pretend I was a grown up lady with vintage (laughs) clothes that my mom would give me from the antique store. And I think watching those kinds of movies made me want to grow up and be like that. Or I thought I just took for granted it was like that, that everyone dressed like that and wore red lipstick. And I started dressing in vintage clothes because I couldn't afford like the designer jeans or sneakers or things that my classmates had in high school. And then when I was just out of high school... I started um, hanging out with club kids and drag queens. My boyfriend was a big rave promoter in Los Angeles. (laughs) Oh, cool. (laughs) I kind of got involved in this like colorful world. And I was dressing in vintage from high school, basically. And dressing in vintage and wearing red lipstick and cat eyeliner made me, gave me like confidence that I didn't have because I was a very shy blonde girl from a farming town in Michigan. And I moved out to California when I was 12. So there was this thing about finding my power with glamour and transformation, if that makes sense, and doing it myself. Mm. (laughs) Um, So really what happened was I wanted to recreate pinups. And it started there in the early 90s, you know, fashioning myself after pinup girls and dressing in 40s clothes. I would take these photos and I had one of the first... I mean, I guess I probably had the first pinup website that ever existed in like 92 or 93. It was when you could have one page and we'd have all these pinup pictures of me and people could order postcards, like signed postcards. So that was my first pinup business. In that same time, when I was researching pinup, I uh, saw that like a lot of the burlesque dancers posed for pinups in the men's magazines of the 30s and 40s. So I thought, why don't I make a show? (laughs) Why don't I perform like that? And it started in strip clubs where I'd wear my vintage lingerie and my corsets and my opera gloves and do strip teases in a regular strip club. And then as I grew, I became popular as a pinup girl and also as a fetish model, like a modern Betty Page, like recreating bondage photos and such. So I became pretty like famous, big fish in a little pond, <laughs> very little pond um, around the world. And I used to come to like London and perform at the Fetish Ball and all of these like Torture Garden and those things in the 90s. 
And so I started headlining strip clubs across the United States. If you don't know, there's like big extravagant strip clubs across the U.S., some of them beautiful and glamorous and some of them not so much. But that's what I started doing and started, you know, creating my shows. And then the shows got bigger and bigger. I saved my money and buy more elaborate costumes. And then in 2000, I met my friend Catherine Delish, who is an amazing burlesque performer and my right hand in creating the biggest, lavish shows. So yeah, we met and then things really just took off. I became kind of like a it girl of the fashion scene in the early 2000s. I was on the cover of Playboy in America when it was still kind of a big deal there when when stars used to pose for it, like yeah. you know, Naomi Campbell and Drew Barrymore and Sherilyn Fenn and Pamela Anderson. Amazing. Uh, so that was kind of like my breakout moment. And suddenly I was sitting front row at Gautier and Louis Vuitton <laughs> and performing at the Louis Vuitton opening. And, you know, I was the girl in the, the martini glass and the champagne glass. And that's pretty much, I'm out of breath from yeah. telling that story. It's like I was trying to fit in 20 years. <laughs> It's so cool the way that you've taken so much inspiration from a bygone time, you know, the classic black and white era of the 1940s and 50s. And, you know, there's so much vintage glamour and it's definitely very unique. Like you said, it's something that people hadn't seen very much and were so enamored by it and really taken Mm -hmm. by, I guess, your persona. And I think your whole stage persona and the way you present yourself is ultra feminine and very much plays with traditional concepts of male desire. As a woman in the public eye, myself, sometimes I wonder, like, have you ever felt the need to reassess this persona and the presentation, if at all? You know, like perceptions of sexuality and femininity. And I feel like all those perceptions are becoming so much less binary these Mm -hmm. days, like less black and white, perhaps. And how would you reply to people who would question if femininity and like feminism can peacefully coexist, Mm -hmm. especially in like the Me Too era? Well, I think because I've kind of lived my career and my life with, I think, an arc that happened not by my own design, but, you know, it started off as performance that seemed to be more under the male gaze, but that changed dramatically. And I remember exactly when it changed and I think how it changed. I wrote my first book in around 2003, four, And I, I really talked about why I love this era, why I love pinup, what makes me feel empowered about burlesque. And suddenly I had, I went on, um, I was in England and I went on the, um, like all the big talk shows with the book. Jonathan Ross, right? Jonathan that was like Ross, the big yeah, one. I thought so. I went I on there so, and yeah, talked yeah. about my book. Yeah. And I had this like moment. And then next day I was doing a signing at Harrods with the horse and carriage and all that kind of big <laughs> thing. And they closed off the streets. And I looked out and there were all these women. And I thought, okay, this is different than I thought it would be. It's, I think by telling my story about why I love it, it resonated with other women about like harnessing your erotic power, your sensual power, Mm. living life on your own terms, a new kind of feminism. Because ultimately to me, being a feminist means choosing to live your life however you want and not answering to other people's opinions. So yeah, I think uh, it was interesting for me and I feel really, I say this all the time, but you know, people talk about the golden age of burlesque, 
which was, you know, like the 30s and 40s, it was kind of over by the 50s, I would say now is the golden age of burlesque because burlesque has, for the better part of 25 years, really, it's been a movement, but it has been a place of inclusivity and diversity. It has been in this era. And it wasn't back then. And I know, mm. you know, I'm me. I, I, you know, I can, I can only be me. But one of the things that's most important to me about burlesque and what I do now is that I can tour all over the world and create the burlesque show that I think will have meaning for people. So I've always cast the show with diversity in mind, but not just because I was trying to tick a box because I've been doing this for 20 years. It was because I found the most interesting burlesque performers had something to kind of overcome, you know, like something challenging in their lives that made you want to watch them and win. And like, you know, the most powerful performers of that, the people that work really hard at it and make it and are extremely creative. So the show that I tour with is not like a a show of pinup girls. There's just as many men in the show as women performing striptease and as many different people as I can bring. I mean, I wish I could have a show of a cast of 500, believe me. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but it's yeah. like, to me, something to be able to go to the London Palladium and do six nights of sold out show. That's like not something I ever expected would happen in the 90s when I was a Playboy model, that's for sure. It's really incredible and super inspiring because I just feel like you know, as women, maybe we've been suppressed a little bit by the media of how you're supposed to be or how you're supposed to look or what Mm -hmm. you're supposed to do. And to have a role model like you who really embodies the idea of, you know, being a woman and the feminine image as well is, is really empowering, at least for me, it is for sure. And to find the strength in that and to be proud of that as well is, Mm -hmm. is really important. And I think maybe as women, we've been pushed down for too long to not allow to truly feel who we really are and to explore also the sexual and feminine side of ourselves mm-hmm. because maybe it's like been looked down on or something. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I've always kind of leaned into things that could be considered taboo or risque, like, I mean, striptease, obviously, or yeah. choosing to be objectified or put yourself in a position where you are objectified or bondage and fetishism, the corset. A lot of people are very offended by the idea of putting on a corset, but I love oh, the really? idea of taking these things that could be perceived as degrading or you know, bondage, <laughs> for lack of mm-hmm. a better word, that make you feel you can liberate that taboo by saying, I like it for this reason, or like wearing extremely high heels like that could be seen as limiting like you can't run there's lots of things you cannot do when you're wearing very high heels right but by wearing them there's a power in saying (laughs) I'm gonna do this because I it feels freeing definitely so I like that and I like the idea of making things more uh friendly playful fun you know that's something I always loved yeah there's a real confidence to that yeah (laughs) I guess what people see in your show is like this incredible spectacle. And I feel like that's just really like the tip of the iceberg in terms of Mm -hmm. your involvement. You know, this is absolutely your show. You know, I'm told that you produce it. You oversee every last Mm -hmm. detail from the sets, the costumes, the music, the lighting. You even do your own hair and makeup. You know, the creative eye is... is, 
right over everything, you know? And and I want to know, mm. what do the months of preparation for a show look like for you? Well, it is a constant evolution. Like the show that I'm touring with, the Glaminatrix tour, which I already did Europe and the UK, and then I'll do the US in January and February. It's been in evolution since 2019. I debuted that particular show in Australia and New Zealand. And then I had two years to figure out how I wanted to change it and evolve it. And even now, I've had a few months off and I'm sitting here going, oh, I have an idea that could make it even better. Or, you know, shifting cast because some people are not available. I bring people from all areas of the world. So it's... um, And also I feel like different countries respond to different types of talent as well. So it's always an evolution. I'm constantly chipping away at it, which is one of the things in being your own producer and director of the show is kind of, and to star in it, it's kind of hard to uh, do all of that. I spend a lot of time analyzing the videos and making notes on how to make it better. And maybe it could be easier if I brought someone in to co-direct with me. But the only person I could ever see co-directing with me is my partner, Catherine Delish, who designs my costumes and my martini and champagne glasses. And Mm. she's, you know, she's got her own business and her own life. And she doesn't really want to travel anymore so much. So it's kind of difficult. And I just can't see myself aligning with anybody else because I've come this far and done so much. You know, I get exhausted from the do-it-yourself thing, you know, but yeah. it's exhausting like sometimes. But I also feel like it's important because, you know, I wrote a do-it-yourself beauty book called Your Beauty Mark. And I feel a little bit like if I had all these hair and makeup people around me all the time, that's not what I'm doing. Like I want to empower other people to feel like they can get red carpet ready and that anybody can mm-hmm. do this. I'm not a magician. I just wanted to learn how to do it. You know, I thought about when I was 19 years old, I was studying vintage movies on VHS tapes and staying home to learn how to do a 40s <laughs> bouffant hairdo, you know, the a easy very way. do-it-yourself no, girl. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. And I feel like it's important for the messaging of what I do because there's so many mm. women that come to my show and female presenting people. And I think it's important to not have like all of the drama, the hair and the makeup people around me. I, I bring them in when I need to, like for, I have to delegate mm. sometimes. Like I'll have somebody do my hair while I'm doing my makeup or I'll do my makeup and some, you know. I'm feeling inspired. Sometimes it's good. I always feel like every time I, I get out on a red carpet, I do feel very good though about my team. I'm like, God, that tiny army that comes to save my life. But maybe I should read your book. I love that sometimes. Do the, you know what's... To start to do my makeup, I've always felt so nervous. Yeah. It can be daunting because, I don't know, I feel two ways. If you make a mistake, like everybody does, right? Like a makeup or hair mistake on the red carpet, especially mm. makeup, because you cannot see things that they see. You have to blame yourself mm. or you have to blame the glam squad. I don't know which one's worse. I'd rather blame myself. (laughs) We'll be right back with Dita Von Tees after this short break. I I guess, you know, there's so much that goes on behind a show and a spectacle and when you can take control of something like that that's very personal to you, you know, your hair and your makeup. I think that's one way of just making your life so much easier for yourself. And I, I mm-hmm. think people just don't really realize what a commitment 
you know, a performer has to make, you know, behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but also staying mentally and physically strong. And it's not just about looking good, I guess. It's also about the stamina. Right. Mm-hmm. And mental stamina too. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. And for me, I, I found that something like yoga has been like a really beautiful way for me to keep my mind and my body strong while on mm-hmm. the road and like between shows. And do you have something that really works for you? Yeah, um, I'm into meditation, like taking a minute. And sometimes it's like a guided meditation on my headphones. And But I learned mm-hmm. transcendental meditation. So I think that, but also when I'm on the road, doing my hair and makeup in a quiet room and listening to music I like, that also helps. You know, sometimes when you have all these people around you, there's this energy. And I find that kind of like my ritual is like the alone time in the dressing room. And I have my dresser, my wardrobe person I've known since I was 18 years old. So he's a close friend. He knows he knows when to, you know, cheer me up or when not to talk at all or we <laughs> like the same music and we, you know, sing along to ridiculous songs. But I think that's another reason I love doing my hair and makeup when I'm on tour especially. Yeah, it's like a little peaceful moment, the calm before the storm, mm-hmm. I suppose. And I mean it's like a it's like a six hour moment though, I have to say. Yeah. Like when I go, you know, <laughs> six I go hour calm the before the storm. Yeah. Because it's like doing makeup and checking lights and checking where the martini glass or champagne glass goes, like all of the things that you need to do when you're in a news theater for one night. Yeah. And your stage show, it's built around the anticipation of a striptease and the promise of like Mm -hmm. a big reveal. But you said that your show at Crazy Horse in Paris, which was just a few years ago, was the first time that you were truly buck naked on stage yeah, yeah, yeah. and you talked about having to like overcome your vulnerability to perform that show and and I think a lot of people mm-hmm. will find it really surprising because you look so confident and you are in control like what was that experience like for you like have you repeated it and what mm-hmm. have you learned like are your boundaries after doing something like that well technically it wasn't the first time I was <laughs> naked on stage because you know when I was doing certain strip clubs in the US they would be nude clubs and I you know of course I was that person that I'd be naked for two (laughs) seconds at the end with my feather fans just to fulfill the contract, you know, but I was in my twenties, you know, so it's a different, to me, it was a big difference being like, I didn't care. I didn't have a care in the world when I, before social media, when I was in my twenties, I was just having the time of my life. Nobody ever said like, Hey, you know, you got a little bit of cellulite there or, you know, you look a little bloated. Nobody ever said those kinds of things when I was 20 because there wasn't, you know, it was just, I was living. But yeah, the crazy horse was, what was so daunting about it was it was an act that uh, me and Ali Madavi created and it was so precise with the lights, basically totally nude with only the lights to dress and undress and if I was out of the light, like a millimeter, you know, oh my it would, gosh. you could see things. And the worst was, you know, the crew getting ready and the the, uh, the lights um, overhead and like just standing there naked while watching the crew move everything. I was mortified about that. But they were like, that's the crazy horse. They're just doing their job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the precision and being scared of being out of the light, like, oh, I'm out of the light. I'm in the light. I'm out of the light. I'm in the light. I'm out of the light. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like you got more confident after that experience in itself or? Yeah. I mean, I think I prefer my 
own brand of striptease, which is so reliant on the layers and layers of costume than being bathed in light. I just felt like a little bit vulnerable and out of control. But when I'm doing my own thing, all the costumes are designed in a way that make me feel confident and comfortable and cover and accentuate the things I choose. Mm -hmm. And you know, but what's interesting is how the last few years actually... I just turned 50 last week and I know it's like, happy you know, birthday. Oh, it's crazy. Who's, you know, <laughs> Gypsy Rose Lee, the famous striptease star. She was, you know, thought that by, you know, 28, she was over the hill. You know, like that's what, you, that's what it used to be like in the golden age of striptease or burlesque. But yeah, like the last few years, I kind of actually care less than when I was in my 30s and performing. Like I care, I used to be so concerned with perfection on stage and now I'm a little like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm not going to say, oh, just because I'm not perfect from that angle, I'm not going to do that thing anymore. I kind of don't really, does that make sense? Like I don't really care Absolutely. as much as I did. It, I used to want to be perfect sense. on stage and now I don't feel that. I want to be perfect in other ways. Yeah, I have um, a similar experience, I guess. Like I always felt like the live show, just every single element had to, be so perfect that I would be really upset if, for example, like I didn't sing something right or I went off pitch or like something went wrong or I, you know, I, I'm like in the middle of dancing and I just, I mess something up or whatever. And I've just learned that that's also the beauty of doing something live and also mm -hmm. the beauty of being human as well and allowing ourselves to have those very human experiences. And that's kind of also what brings the magic and the beauty to it all. And mm -hmm. In many ways, I, I feel like your story has evolved in such unexpected ways, you know, after beginning your performance career in a very much under the male gaze, you know, somewhat mm. seedy strip clubs through to a very public mm -hmm. and a kind of gothic relationship, I guess, with Marilyn Manson mm -hmm. that could have overshadowed everything mm -hmm. that came since. Yeah. But today your shows sell out around the world with audiences that massively skew female and you're in high mm -hmm. demand for primetime TV shows like RuPaul's Drag Race and Dancing with the Stars and Mars Singer and, and you have a spectacular cameo as well in Olivia Wilde's recent release, Don't Worry Darling, which mm -hmm. I'm dying to hear more about, by the way. But what has, <laughs> what's changed? No, is it your show? Is it your audience? Is it simply the times? Well, it's the audience and the times. Like even since like the pandemic, I feel like more people than ever. Like I used to have a hard time. I would do, you know, auditions for dancers here in LA, like legit dancers and they'd all come and, and some would be not comfortable with striptease, but now everyone is. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it just <laughs> seems like being home, people have liberated their bodies more. Like mm. nobody's being shamed about it. Whereas like 10 years ago when I did a dance audition, it was like, oh, harder to find people that wanted to be in a burlesque show. And now it's easy and everyone's interested in it. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I feel like it's Instagram and how a lot of people, you know, during the pandemic were suddenly, you know, I have a lingerie line. So I could, people would tag me in their own photos of their lingerie. And I mm. think you just can't really like shame people anymore for saying like, look at me in my lingerie and or yeah. look at me with my shirt off. I think it's just a different time and I'm grateful for it. I, I love it. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, social media sometimes can have a downfall, but then also be, yeah. you know, have its silver it's lining. Hard. 
It's got its positives. I used to have to go and take out an ad in the newspaper for my shows and have to walk down. To, <laughs> and now I can just advertise my shows myself. And as your own producer, it's very helpful to have social media. But, you know, we all know that it has a lot of detriments as well. Mm. So back to the Don't Worry Darling cameo. Oh, yeah. Um, for audiences <laughs> who might not have seen it, your picture doing a mm-hmm. burlesque number in the film. How did that come about? And what was it like performing for Florence Pugh and Harry Styles oh my God, on set? It was wild. So, you know, <laughs> I don't want to have any spoilers, but yeah, it was the first thing I did in the pandemic in 2020. You know, I was sitting home all year and I had like fear because I was thinking, oh God, I haven't performed. It was fun because the room it was performed in was somewhere where I did shows in the, the 90s and early 2000s. It's like a separate club that operates on the weekends too, like with mm-hmm. big bands. So you can actually get the feeling if you like that scene, you could recreate it yourself in a way. Um, it was daunting, especially like arriving on set and everyone from the cast being there and the, the scene itself is very pivotal and intense. But yeah, I was loving it, although it was difficult for me because I usually the costume that I wore was something I use in my show. And there's a lot of like kind of sleight of hand tricks in order to get it off and on a tiny little stage where it's, I could only just, you know, really stand and walk around my glass. It was a little bit difficult, but hey, editing. The power of cinema. Yeah, I was so like, (gasps) you know, really obsessed with the uh, cinematographer. Libatique is his name. And I was all day just like, hey, this looks really good. Thanks. I know who to I know uh, who to be friends with on the set. It's always it's that lighting so, person. The lighting guy. And the cinematographer. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. It makes it does make such a difference. Mm-hmm. So good. You're taking your um your show, Glaminatrix, to North America in the new year, and it's mm-hmm. built to be the most lavish touring burlesque show in history. And it looks absolutely wild. For people who have yet to see one of your shows, what can they expect? And how has it evolved from your previous tours? And how do you keep um, like burlesque fresh for yourself today? So for those who don't know, I'll kick off the show on New Year's Eve here in Los Angeles at the Orpheum Theater, which is one of the beautiful gilded theaters in Los Angeles. And there actually used to be, you know, beautiful big burlesque shows there back in the 30s and 40s. And then it'll travel across the US and Canada, but it's a variety show. I try to keep it fairly true to what a burlesque show would be, which is variety show format. There's a theme, but there's not a story. Mm-hmm. It's just like, for me, like one amazing burlesque act after another. And again, I go on stage like five times, but I'm really there to present an evening of burlesque. So it's two acts and an intermission. People get really dressed up to go to the show, which is really great. People come in drag, even if they've never been in drag before. Oh, People fun. come in half bondage. <laughs> like it's amazing. Like <laughs> we get a lot of people feel free to get wild there, which I love. You know, people get dressed mm. up. They wear tuxedos. They dress with that. hats and feathers, and and then you have like a lot of couples come, of course. But it's usually female driven and a big LGBTQIA audience as well. So I love that. And the audience is something to see, really. Everyone who comes to the show that has never been to a show like this says, "What? it's like a glamour rock concert. Like it's a frenzy. People, they get wild and it's just fun. It's what burlesque is supposed to be. I mean, the word burlesque means to poke fun at. And so that's what we do. I'm poking fun at striptease, myself, 
eroticism, bondage, fetishism, dominatrixes, glamour. It's, you know, I ride a giant lipstick. I have a circus wagon with um, sexy cats in the back that I drive with pony <laughs> boys pulling it. It's just absurd, but I love it. It sounds I mean, it's, so um, fun. It's just wild. It's just a wild night of fantasy and escapism and striptease, nudity. I have to I have to come see it. I have to come catch the show. I'm like dying to see it. And I'm sure you're so excited to to you know getting back on the road, but yeah. if you're anything like me, you know you'll also look forward to coming home at the end of it. Yeah. And is there anything like a typical week when you're at home? Like what's the first thing you do when you get home? Like I love to just lay on my sofa and invite my friends, mm-hmm. have dinner, drink wine, mm. sleep in. Just, yeah, like what are some of your favorite things to do? Well, I usually sleep in because on tour, I have to be at my best, you know, like at nine o'clock at night. So Mm. I sleep in. So when I get home, I wake up early. No, but surrounding myself with cats, my cats, I love cooking for myself. I get really excited like, oh, I finally get to cook my own meal instead of eating cold food out of a box. Because, you know, whatever you do, trying to relate. order food in some town yeah. and you're just like, here's here's your lunch from earlier. It's been sitting... I, I put it on my hot rollers to keep it warm sometimes. It's a good top life hack. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I could just have a microwave, but I don't know. There's something about that. I don't know. I have my silly things that you I gotta do. You got to keep the dream alive, um, Dita. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, just, and just, yeah, I guess just resting and being home in my space. Like I'll, when I come home, I don't want to leave my house for several days, you know. I can completely relate. I'm really interested in personal evolutions. And while you're Mm -hmm. really firmly the star of your own show, as we just touched on, you know, you're now doing more TV work and you're increasingly bringing other performers to the stage, such as like, Dirty Martini and Zelia Rose mm-hmm. and you even have your own mm-hmm. lingerie line that you spoke about and your own range of fragrances. How important is it for you to constantly be thinking about what's next and what can we expect to see from you yeah. from the years ahead? Yeah, well, I'm really excited. I'm putting the final touches on my next book, which is called Fashioning the Femme Total. And I also just in August launched a Patreon where I do all my beauty tutorials and like stuff like that and put like mini documentaries about the tour and things like that. And I really love that because one of the first things that I ever had in the 90s was a membership website where people could chat with each other and where I could share more of myself with people without being, you know, trolled or attacked Mm. generally. So I love that, that Patreon. And so I've been doing a lot of content creating or bringing camera crews on the road with me and then making edits to put on there. So I do love that. That's my my favorite project right now. And aside Sounds from great. that, yeah, the the book is takes up a lot of time. I think I've been working on it now for like four years, which is the same with my oh, first wow. book. I can't help it. It's it's kind of great when you think about like if a book takes five years, well things change a lot in five years. And so Yeah, so you're um, constantly editing you know, and Yeah the language changes and the things you want to address change, yeah. We'll be right back with Dita Von Tees after this short break. You're always just so immaculately presented, like both on and off stage. And for me, as someone who likes to dress up at the corner store, like... I absolutely love it, even though I feel like I'm not doing myself such a good 
representation right now. Um, do you ever feel like you just go for comfort and just reach for like the sweatpants and the hoodie? Like what does <laughs> dress down Dita look like? Does she exist? <laughs> I mean, I just think, okay, like, yeah, I put makeup and did my hair for you today because I'm not going to, you know, but I live in things like this. My Catherine Delish robes, my satin pajamas. I do spend afternoons in my athleisure workout uniform, which is like a black capri pants and like a t-shirt or something. And that's kind of my icon of casual looks is like that famous Audrey Hepburn photo. You know, that's my dress down look, <laughs> the ballet flats and the, the black pants and a t-shirt. I love that. I aim to be as glamorous as you. Definitely. I just always think of how can I show people ways of doing it easy? You know, I like to wear a dress because all yeah. you do is zip it up. But with the hoodie and the sweats, you've got all these pieces, like the separates boggles my mind. I'm a big fan of one, you know, one zip and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I get it. It just, I think it's really cool. And I, <laughs> I can really imagine Cute. you being the most incredible mentor to anyone starting out in burlesque. And with that in mind, mm. for my final question, I wonder what advice do you think you'd give to your younger self and what's the best piece of advice oh. that you've ever been given? Uh, let's see. Best advice, like uh, don't smoke cigarettes, use sunscreen. <laughs> Those are, oh, sleep on your back. <laughs> do you do you actually sleep on your back? From my, I do. I taught myself to sleep on my back. Oh my god! I I think we need a we need you to write a book on that one. I know. Well, it wasn't <laughs> easy, but I like in 2020 I discovered my favorite beauty product that I love, which is do-it-yourself lash extensions. It's called Lashify. And oh, I've heard of, of like, those. Okay, yeah, it's amazing. It's totally life changing. Like. I will have these lashes on for three days and I will wake up with like my lashes on. But that was part of it too. I know I'd been told before, like learn to sleep on your back. And I remember asking my friend that suggested it and it was actually Catherine Delish who makes the robes and things. And I said, okay, sleeping on my back, like, okay, it's better for wrinkles for sure, like laying on your back. But I said, but what about my butt? And I go, do I have to make mm. a choice? Like, do I have creases face in my your butt, butt or my face? And she goes, hey, <laughs> face, face, okay? And I was like, okay. So I, ta- I just bought like a few different Amazon pillows for helping you, you know, your beauty pillows to learn. And you can totally do it. And I think meditating, the combo of meditating and having like a pillow and just learning like, I'm going to sleep on my back. And I did it. And then so less wrinkles, my lashes stay intact. And <laughs> this is all very But good. it is one of those things like many ladies, Julie Newmars told me that, like Mamie Van Doren, all these like glamour ladies of the 50s, you know, I listened to their advice. Wow, that's very cool. I mean, and now when I think of it, there was, I had a little phase where I'd bought this like LED light and I would sleep under it <laughs> and I would fall asleep like that and wake up with it still above. And I'm like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I managed to sleep on my back. But yeah. sometimes with those kind of, you know, techie things, I they last like about a couple months for me and then I get bored and I'm like, okay, what's the next thing? But now I'm like, maybe yeah. I should bring it back. That might help me sleep on my back again. Yeah, It's good long term. It's the right thing to do. It's a good tip. Well, I feel like you've given me lots mm-hmm. of good little tips and life hacks. And I like to end my conversations with some lists Okay. Uh, from my guests. And uh, I was wondering for my first of two lists that I want to ask you is uh, what are five must-have items in your makeup bag? 
Well, what about my vanity? It's right here. I actually pulled them out so that I could uh, share. Okay, them. cool. My favorite things lately, lately. Tell me, tell me, you know, tell me. It, it changes, right? <laughs> um, okay, I've got this, which I love. This Charlotte Tilbury concealer comes in a cute little compact. That's one. Um, this is like my forever lipstick. It's a, a Guerlain one. I think it's called. Oh, Excess de Rouge. Oh, Suku. I don't know if you know this brand, Suku. They oh, yes, I do, actually. This is my favorite. Like, this is the best. It's like um, S-U-Q-Q. Foundation. Yeah, S-U-Q-Q. That's my favorite. Yeah. Um, nice. And then also these vinyl lipstick. I've been playing with these a lot. This one's Urban Decay. But this one's Maybelline, and it's pretty good. But yeah. these are these ones oh. that you shake that are vinyl, no transfer lip color. And, and it stays on. I love it does. You just have to let it dry and you have to watch because if, if you get it on your teeth, it's going to stay on your teeth. You, do know, okay. you have to check it. You have to be like aware for the first minute or something. But one's just more pigmented than the other. And then, of course, my Lashify, which I already told you about, that's like my number one end-all, be-all beauty product. It comes in like a kit. You get it and you... Have you learned how to apply them yourself? Oh, yeah. You know what's amazing is if you can't figure it out, you can do a Zoom with one of their educators. It's like wow. pretty great. This is very good. That's how I got connected with them. One day I got on my Zoom lesson and they're like, oh, you're Dita Von Tees. And I was like, yeah, I love this product. <laughs> you should ask um, them to sponsor you. You're like doing a really I good did. job. At, I've got my lashes oh, you sponsored did? now. But okay, I was a customer. I was like a subscriber. You know, it's magic when there's something you genuinely love that you buy. Definitely. And then suddenly you're like, hey, oh yeah, I would like some of that free. Yeah. Yes, but I eat regardless, Amazing. I'd buy it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so cool. And my um, And my last list is five of the best burlesque performers of all time. Oh, of all time. Well, for me, I have to put the top three up there, like the ladies that came before me, of course, that inspired me. Gypsy Rosalie, who was, you know, a great businesswoman as well. If you, for people that have never heard of her, you'd want to watch like the film Gypsy with Natalie Wood. And that's kind of like a very glamorous depiction of her life. Although I would suggest if you're more interested in knowing the real story, you'd read something about her. I'm actually friends with her son who lives in Northern California. And then secondly, I'd say Sally Rand, the fan dancer, another amazing woman who toured uh, through her whole life doing her feather fan dance that she made famous around the world. Then Lily St. Cyr, because she was kind of, um, she was more like a 50s performer on the later end in the supper clubs. And there, you can see lots of great videos of her performing. And she was just so elegant and beautiful. Although she was a troubled, kind of a troubled person later in life. And then I have to name two modern ones. Catherine Delish, who is like the performer that I keep mentioning, who is, you know, taught me everything I know. The person that coaches me and creates all the most lavish costumes, including the beautiful Swarovski crystal one that's in Don't Worry Darling. And then you mentioned Dirty Martini earlier. And Dirty Martini, mm -hmm. when I go on tour, the first person I check to see their availability is like, is Dirty Martini available? Because Dirty Martini brings the house down all over the world. Oh, she's an incredible wow. tassel twirler. And she's, for me, the best burlesque performer that you can see today. Yeah, just incredible. <laughs> Amazing. Dita, thank you so, so much. 
Thank you for your recommendations. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wonderful answers as well. I, I really appreciate it. It's been so lovely talking to you. You're really incredibly inspiring and I hope to be as elegant and one day as confident as you are. So thank oh, you so much. Thank you. Well, anytime you're ready to take a spin in a giant martini glass in a burlesque show, you just let me know and I'll, uh, I got private lessons for you. For real? <laughs> yeah. I am there. Tassels <laughs> on. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dita. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to all of you for tuning in and thanks for the candor and brilliance of Dita Von Tees, whose Glaminatrix show I cannot wait to see. You can find her list of the best burlesque dancers past and present in this week's issue of Service 95, our free weekly newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and let us know in our comments if you get the chance to check out any of her suggestions. Our handles for both are at Service95. Sending you all my love and see you next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service.